Today's show is sponsored by Howl FM, and I'm excited to announce the Howl app is now available on Android. Yes, to celebrate the launch of the Android app, the Howl team is organizing a special sweepstakes. Yes, for Earwolf and Wolf Pop fans, and they're giving you the chance to win an amazing prize. What is that prize? A two-night trip to L.A. for two, travel and accommodations included. During your visit, you get the chance to visit the Earwolf Studios and sit in on a recording of an Earwolf show. How cool! Go to contest.howl.fm to enter for the rules. Remember, with Howl Premium, whether you are on an iPhone, Android, or the web for just $4.99 a month, you'll get access to amazing and exclusive content all the Earwolf and Wolf Pop shows, uh, WTF with Mark Marin, all the archives, and all the new uh, new Howl original shows. It's all there, $4.99 a month. It's nothing. Easy. And with the promo code READ, you get a full month of Howl Premium for free. So to redeem your code, okay, just go to the checkout at howl.fm and enter code READ. Contest.howl.fm enter the sweepstakes, and come and see a live recording of Reading Aloud or another show. Do it. (laughs) It's Reading Aloud. I am your host, Nate Cordry. I just tried to record this the first time and I call myself a guest host, which is wrong. I'm the full, I am the host every time for the show. Right, Cody? Yes. Okay, I host, there's no other, is someone else hosting this show while I'm not here? Not, not to my knowledge. Thank you. It is October 23rd, uh, and this is one of those special episodes that I don't want to waste time with uh, me reading something or having a comedy essay read. I just want to get to the heart of today's episode, which is an, just a spectacular conversation with Kelly Carlin. She wrote a book. Uh, a memoir about growing up. Her dad is George Carlin, and she has so many incredible stories about growing up with this family in Southern California and dealing with all the things she had to deal with. And I don't want to waste any more time. So let's just get right into it. This is um, this is me chatting with Kelly. Here it comes. I remember when I, cause I lived in New York for six years and I came out here and I remember the first time I thought, oh, it's different here. I was in line for coffee, like, my third month in. And I got up to the barista. And they're like, hey, how's it going? How's your day? And I was like, are you, f- are you fucking crazy? What the fuck did you just say to me? Get out of my life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I am in a race, yes, okay? Yes, but we want to just acknowledge each other yeah. on the way. We're fucking people. We are. Someone said to me... The difference between LA, LA and New York, and I don't believe this, but I like this um, this urban myth, is that when someone in New York says, fuck you, they mean, I love you. Right. And when someone in LA says, I love you, they mean, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> Have you heard that? Certainly in this business. Yeah. Well, maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's more specific maybe. to- Maybe. But, but I could see someone on the streets in New York going, hey, fuck you. And exactly. You, and it is. Yeah. It's a total- affectionate moment. Yes, absolutely. You feel like you've been seen and your soul is loved by that person. That's exactly right. You've had a fucking, because you've had a moment. Yes. Yeah. Because you can get so lost in that city and be, 
there's nothing like, like you haven't been alone until you've been alone in New York. Truly. And to have an interaction, even if it's a garbage man going, fuck you, go fuck your mother. It's like, all right, cool. We are two humans. I'm still here. I've been seen by another human today. We are alive. <laughs> we are alive. Kelly Carlin is my guest today. She wrote a book, a memoir. It's called A Carlin Home Companion, Growing Up with George. Her dad is George Carlin. Maybe you've heard of him. He's into jokes. Um, boy, did you have a lot of people... Give you little blurbs in the back of this book. Yeah. Roseanne fucking Cash. I know. John Stewart, Margaret Cho, Bill Maher, et cetera, et cetera. Not so much Kevin Pollock. He can go fuck yeah, himself. Yeah, fuck him, right? Um, Dana Gould. I mean, I'm not surprised that you could sort of have your pick you of know, people giving you blurbs, uh, I or think, was it hard? I No, I think what happened, seriously, is uh, these are all people that I've met, and I know, and I said to them, hey, would you do that? And um, because they love and adore my father they you know winced a little bit and went <laughs> okay sure yeah i'll read your book and give you a blurb um but luckily they genuinely all did like it yeah and uh gave me wonderful blurbs i mean really how far are you into the are you getting towards the tail end of press or are you still in the fucking no the i'm getting into the tail end now i'm able to uh have hours stretch hours in my day where i don't talk about myself great uh, which feels very good. <laughs> and then I, I, like today, got to get in my car and spend a, a good time. I, you know, we, we're here in L.A. and I live by LAX and we're here in the east edge of Hollywood. Yes. Sorry um, about that. No, my ways got me here way in ways I had no idea how to get to Hollywood. But Hence the clever name. <laughs> how long did it take you to get here? 38 minutes. Oh, it's not too bad. Oh, uh, that is really on a Friday? Yeah, on a fucking Friday. I, I am a rock star right yeah, well now. Yeah, well fucking that. done. Yes. Thank you, Waze. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Waze. <laughs> yeah. We need to get a little money out of them if we can. <laughs> I'll right take now. every dime I can get. <laughs> Absolutely. Are you totally exhausted by it? Or are you still like because you have such an amazing message that you're spreading with this book or at this point are you like I don't want to fucking I don't care radio station in Kansas City yeah. that I'm on for it's, fucking 90 seconds it's um it, you know it's it's really ultimately it is about I try to connect with each person I talk to yesterday I did six phoners in a row of that kind of stuff at what time it was not too early it was from okay. 9 to 1 but um you know, most of those kind of radio stations, all they want to do is ask about my dad. Yeah. And, you know, and they don't and, – and, you know, in the 12 minutes we have or whatever it is, there's not a lot of time to go into depth. I mean, there is if you really want to do it. I'll go there. But – so those I start to get a little tired of and um, and I and I keep thinking, oh, this will be over soon. Yeah. But knowing that I was like coming here today to have a – you know, sit down, have a real conversation with you and, and understanding that you're in the business, your family's in the business too. Like you get some of this, of yeah. course. Oh, yeah. Um, I was like, oh, good. I'll get to have a fun conversation today. Yeah. You know? So yeah. that that's – and for me, it really is about always about connecting with people and yeah. and and having something real and spontaneous happen too. You know, so well, that's why that's how we're going to finish up. My guest has been Kelly Carlin. Yes, go that buy your book. Thanks, fantastic. Thanks for coming in. This is easy. Uh, I so I you talk about in the book about Lewis Black bringing you out on a on a cruise. Yes, and that sort of being the first. And I love. I know Lewis. He taught me stand up. Wow. At the Williamstown Theater Festival when I was twenty. Holy shit. He taught every apprentice there stand up. <sighs> Everyone, even the kids who had no business being on stage <laughs> at all. His 
it was so great and warm and open. He's like, it doesn't matter if you're funny. That that's so not important. God, I love him. That he is the fucking greatest. He's the most generous man I think on earth. And people don't know that yeah. story. Yeah. And I feel like I'm waiting for the Lewis Black documentary to to be made. And I feel like it's probably not late enough. Um, but he is just so giving and yes. so warm and his character is fuck you with his you know finger but he is the exact opposite he's the dichotomy of that it is so true um how long have you uh, obviously you met him through your dad in uh, some sort of like... i met him after my dad died i did not know i, I knew a couple of comedians oh. before my dad died yeah uh, a few of them were my actual clients because I was a therapist in LA for yeah. a few years. Yeah. Uh, but I did not know any of these A-listers at all. And after my dad died, like within 24 hours after my dad died, people started calling me. Yeah. And um, and Lewis and I connected that week and I invited him out to the memorial. He was one of the guys yeah. who came to the memorial. And we then in November after that, so my dad died in June. We had the memorial in June. Uh, that November, my dad received the Mark Twain Award and Lewis came out to do a section of that Mark Twain prize uh, thing. And yeah. so that's when we really bonded. We started to, to bond as a family with my husband and I and Lewis. And um, oh, even before that, that's right. No, he was doing a show. Uh, it was like a fake mock trial show, and yeah, he played the he was judge. The judge yeah. yeah, and people had to. And defend. then comics were like yes. doing defending. Yeah, it was a great show. He invited Bob and I out to that. That's right. It was like that was like a just a like a month after my dad died, and I walked into the green room, uh, like going, "Hey, we're gonna go hang out with Lewis Black at his TV show," which is weird. And then his <laughs> um, managers at the time, Mark and Joanne, Joanne Astro and Mark Lanau, uh, Joanne took me and like put me down on a couch. And it was about a month after my dad died. And she was like, she's like a mother figure. And she just mm. mothered me. We became very close. And people would walk in and she would go, oh, that's Kelly. That's George's daughter. So, you know, be just be nice to her. Be kind. Like she oh, was like boy. prepping people around oh, me. Lord. And then people would come up and like have a moment with me about oh. my dad or whatever. Is that uncomfortable? No, no. It was actually, I have to tell you, I was in such grief slash shock yeah. after my dad died yeah. that having this comedy community come and put its arms around me, I think kept my head above water. No shit. I really do because mm. it was, it, it could have been a really lonely, scary, overwhelming thing. And like Lewis, they came and they just kind of lifted me up and invited me to be part of the family, which they felt was automatic, but I did. I didn't grow up in the comedy family. Yeah, my dad was George Carlin, but I didn't go to. I did yeah, not yeah. hang out at comedy clubs. Yeah. Was not interested in stand up comedy. I would watch some of it on TV. I'd watch it on the Late Show, Late Shows. You know, I'd obviously watch my dad every once in a while. He'd say, "Oh, you got to see this person or watch this," or I'd catch Chris Rock or someone like that. But it, I'm not a comedy nerd. Yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. my thing. Yeah, yeah, right, right. So it was this kind of like. And part of me was like, am I even allowed to be here? Like, is this kind of like a weird, like, hey, I'm the daughter, come love yeah, yeah, me. Yeah. Yep. But it I wasn't that. like that. I was just like, hi, I'm just me and I'm in shock. And people were just coming and hugging mm. me a lot. And um, it ended up becoming very beautiful. And so what happened with Lewis was a couple of years after that, he's in town and he's like, 
So I'm going to do this crazy cruise ship thing. We four walled a lounge on one of those gigantic Norwegian cruise lines yeah, where yeah. there's like 3,000 people. We've got 400 rabid fans coming on board who've signed up for this Lewis Black cruise thing. I've got a bunch of stand ups coming who are, they're going to be rotating doing, he had like six or seven stand ups John Panette, Kathleen Madigan, Larry Wilmore, Ted oh, Alexandro. Great. I mean, it was just an amazing Vic Henley. Most of these people I didn't know, or all of them I didn't know. Yeah, yeah. And then he says, but I need a couple of day events. And he knew I was a storyteller. And um, and I've been doing personal essays around LA for about 10 years. And he said, um, I don't know, come on board and play some of your dad's videos and tell some family stories. And you got yourself a seven day cruise with me and Bob, your husband, Bob, and you know, we'll all go. And I'm like, uh, yeah, si sign me up for that. Yeah, like that life experience. Like, I just want to go have that. And so I did this. The morning of the thing, I had two kind of compilation uh, DVDs of my dad, and I, it was like an hour and a half before the event. I went through them, cr chronologically picked nine of them, uh, handed them to Bob, my husband, and said, okay, you go to the tech guy, figure that out. I wrote out some stories that I'd done, some other stories that my dad had told me or, or I'd actually read in his memoir, and I did 75 minutes. Wow. And there was there was laughter. There was tears. And for and it was like the first day of the cruise. And for the rest of the cruise, it was one of those things where people would take, hey, Kelly, yeah. you need to go take this on the road. Yeah. And then like all the comics are saying that and all the agents and all the fans. And I'm sitting there going, okay, the last thing I want to do is go around America yeah. and talk about my dad. Uh, totally. Totally. <laughs> I mean, how – Icky. Yeah, it's a lot. That's a very icky. That's a complicated thing. Very complicated. And then Paul Provenza came to me, who's a dear friend, who became a dear friend after my dad died yeah. and all this. And I started working with him on the green room. And I had told him about all of this. And he says, well, well, would you think about doing something like that? And I'm like, eh, no, it would have to be done in the right way. And, yeah. da, da, da. and Paul said, well, I could help you do it in the right way. And Paul, if you listeners out there know anything about comedy, Paul Provenza is not only a stand-up, but uh, a true connoisseur of comedy, uh, a champion of comedy between the green room with Paul Provenza and his book Satiristas. I mean, this is a man who studies it, understands it. Mm. He did the film The Aristocrats with Penn Jillette. So great. Uh, you know, a man who really lives comedy and um, who's got a bullsh the biggest bullshit meter I've ever met in my life. Like nothing sentimental gets by this guy. Wow. And I thought to myself, all right, well, if if I was to do something like this, this would be the man to do it with. Because A, a also he's a trained actor. He's an amazing actor, you know, who's been on, you know, Broadway and off stage and off Broadway and stuff. A great actor. So I knew I could trust him on so many levels. And so we we did. We developed a solo show of the same name, A Carlin Home Companion. And I've been doing it on and off for like the last four years. I did it at the Falcon Theater uh, earlier this year for oh, a five-week cool. run, which was amazing. Oh, nice. Yeah. I but we created theater. something that I was able to tell my story but people do come for the George, you know, I mean, we play the opening video of the solo show is my dad doing 
his kid routine, which is, you know, raising a kid is no big deal. All you do is you put them out on a corner, leave them there for two weeks. If you come back and they're still there, you got yourself a stupid fucking kid. <laughs> and then I walk out. Yeah, it's fucking great. Yeah. Great. It's, I mean, it's just, it's, you know, great. it's just, it's, it's great stuff. And so Paul really helped me own my space. You know, and he said to me, you know, you could walk away from your dad's legacy. You could walk away from all this. And I said mm, to myself, mm, yeah, I could. Mm. And yet I know kind of part of my karma destiny or whatever is to walk through it. Yeah. To find myself on the other side where I can then say, I've done it. Well I did said. it well. Yeah. I did it with heart and raw honesty and great love, but I did it and I'm on the other side. So I don't have to fucking carry it around anymore. Where are you right now? And that's where I am because this book came out. The book for me was really the thing because I could really go deep into everything. The show is 90 minutes and it's a fucking whirlwind. But the book for me was that. It was like, I'm once this book is out and I'm done talking about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which will still be a little while. And my solo show. I'm still going to do hopefully some touring of it next year. But by this time next year, I will be done, done, done talking yeah. with it. But my artistic self is done with it. I mean, I don't have anything more to say. I don't have anything more yeah. to add. Yeah. It's all in there. It sure is. Um, and uh, and it feels fantastic. You I, know? I fucking bet. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about the process of actually, because we've spoken to some writers on the show before, and I'm fascinated by the actual tangible nuts and bolts mm -hmm. of how this happens. Yes. And especially with a memoir, I mean granted you'd done your 90 minute show, so you'd 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 done some digging. And I did some and I had some personal essays, yes. Right. I, and I've been working on my stories for about 15 years. Okay. So yeah. had plenty of understanding. Right. Of what they call my narrative. Right. You right, know? Right. Uh, but the solo show really did. I mean, Paul and I, the work we did in really digging, digging, digging and figuring out what it is about my dad's career in life and my career in life that were parallel, that were in conflict. Mm, mm, yeah. It really helped me get very clear about that. Mm. And then giving, and then going on stage and I had very little stage time before I started this. I right. was doing 10-minute spoken word at like sit and spin in LA and yeah. things like that. I had so I had to a get some stage time in and learn to first of all not panic. Yeah. Stay open <laughs> to the There's the initial crowd. panicking yep. thing that happens yep. like the first 6 months I got on and was just developing it just I have no memory of that at all. Yeah. Don't even know what would happen. I would leave I the stage going, have no idea what just happened the last yeah. 90 minutes. No, yep. Not a clue. Uh, so, but then going, doing the Falcon earlier this year and doing 25 shows over five weeks, you get some stage time. Absolutely. You get some chops. That's how you learn. Um, so, so that helped really getting to like know myself and know my power on stage. Mm. That gave me confidence to work on the book yeah. in, ge in general. How did you, wh wh when you came up with the idea, did someone, did like an agent or an editor come to you? Or did you say, this is a book? What am I talking, this, this is absolutely a book. Or did someone bring this book idea to you? So this was a book in 2006 before my dad died. And right. I told my dad, <clears throat> I tell the story in the book, hey dad, I'm thinking about writing a memoir. And he was like, ah, because we'd already had some issues around me doing my autobiographical work uh -huh. and him feeling a little uncomfortable about it. Yeah. Uh, because it's not what he does. Yeah. You know, I, I, I compare myself more to Richard Pryor than my dad, actually, in that right. department. Right. So I knew in 2006, and I'd had, I had one outlined, and I had an, 
uh, an agent at that time thinking about it. And she was helping me outline it, put that on the shelf because I knew my dad wasn't doing well physically. His health was not well. He was dealing with heart heart failure, didn't know how much time he had on the planet. And I thought, you know what? It's really not important to be doing this right now. Mm. What's more important is being yeah. with my dad and alive and that not being a complication in our relationship. Yeah. Put it aside. He died. Uh, a part of me was like, yeah, that book on the shelf, the book on the shelf. And, you know, my dad's manager and business partner for a million years, Jerry's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Calm down. We'll get to it at some point. Right. And I was not ready. And then in, let's see, I got the book deal. It's 2015, 20, wrote it in 2014. I got the book deal in 2013. In 2011, I went out and Jerry and I pitched it to Simon & Schuster, the imprint that had just done my dad's memoir, his posthumous memoir. It was mm-hmm. like a perfect, you know, in. Yeah. And the guys there were like, this is great. We're going to read it. I had all my essays. I had an outline and everything. And um, they said, no matter what, in two weeks or a week, we'll call you up or down, whatever. We'll give you notes if it's a no or whatever. And I'm like, great. This is like a grown-up thing. Can't wait. Never heard from them. Wow. These are the people we had just done business with. And the thing is, I find out now through my – now going through publishing and everything that the imprint that we had talked to 10 days later was gone. Like they had pulled the plug on this imprint. So they obviously weren't taking any new projects on, but no one bothered to call us. It's the I love you, fuck you. Right there. Yes, that's the perfect right example of that. There. It's like no one picks up the fucking phone in this town. No, absolutely. It's because they're too afraid. They're too. They think because we're artists that we're too. We we can't handle no, someone saying no. Give me constructive criticism. Exactly. Tell me no. It's okay. Please yeah. teach me how to be a grown up. I completely fucking agree. Yes. I completely agree. And all I wanted was like, okay, so if I'm not ready for this, tell me yeah. how to get ready. Yeah. Because I this is a game I want to be in. Yeah. Not a town where people are comfortable having difficult conversations. Yes, yes. Or New York or other cities. That, I'm just going to fucking tell you how it is. Yeah, and but see, you know. but this was Simon & Schuster. This was New York. This was right on fucking Avenue of the fucking America, uh, Simon & Schuster. God damn it. And, that's, and Jerry and I are going, what the fuck's going on? So now I find out that basically their their life became chaotic and, and I clearly was not on their list of calls to make to yeah, let right. us know. Would have been nice to have known that. But looking back on it now, this is before I did my solo show, I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to write this book Mm. four years ago Mm. or five years ago, whenever that was, four years Mm. ago. Um, So then I put it away, focused on the solo show, figuring if I'd get this solo show together, someone's going to be interested in my story eventually. And that's what happened. Uh, An editor at St. Martin's Press hurt me on a podcast. You just never know what it is to go hang out with a friend and talk with them for an hour. What's going to happen with your life? Damn right. I was telling some story from my solo show or I don't know, I don't even know what podcast it was. And he went to his assistant editor and said, check out if this, if she has an agent, if she has a book deal. And if she doesn't have a book deal, he said to her, you should edit this book. And from this editor, this assistant editor, this was a big deal for her because she's like doing, Mm. you know, stuff that was kind of under the radar and and not, you know, not a big splashy thing. And so all of a sudden I got a call out of nowhere from a lit agent here in LA, a very small boutique agency and said, do you have a lit agent? And I'm like, you know, and I told him the Simon Schuster story. And I said, and here's my proposal that I gave to Simon and Schuster. Here are my chapters. My, I had two or three chapters written. Here's my outline. And he's like, wow, this is pretty much ready to go. And, and I said, oh, and I'm doing my solo show at the Acme 
next week on La Brea because I'm getting ready to go to New York to do a, a solo show festival. You should come see what my stories are about and who I am yeah. and how I operate. And he did, and he fell in love with it. And he never told me, though, that Simon St. Martin's Press had already had come to him to find out. Gotcha. You know, because that's what happened was the assistant editor called her friend and said, hey, find out if she's got a book deal. Find out if she's got an agent. And so suddenly now I'm off to New York to do a solo show festival. By the time I get home or I'm on the tram going on the air train going to JFK sitting there. My phone rings. So Simon and she, uh, St. Martin's Press has just uh, made an offer. You know, it was like, it was like happened in like three or four weeks, basically. Wow. It was insane. Yeah, sure. So I don't have that typical story of like sending it out to 50 places. Yeah, right. You know, I had, of course, I fully admit the privilege of having my father's name attached to mine, obviously. Of a Carlin is a Carlin. Um, but what was so thrilling is that and as you know, sure, that'll open a door, a crack for you. Yep. But if you don't show up with the goods, yeah. it's meaningless. Absolutely. You know? So it was like, it was nice to know that, okay, the door cracked and they felt I had the goods. Yeah. Fuck yeah. You know? So that was really well, you incredible. Do. You do. The Thank book you. is The book is wonderful. Thank I you. I cannot recommend it highly enough to my listeners. You have such, I'm sure this word has been used a lot. Courage mm -hmm. uh, in bearing everything. Yeah, and you you think you're getting into a story about George and his daughter, but it's it's your story. Yeah, and because your story is so full and so rich, and it's a hundred degrees in here, Cody. Do you think you can put the air on? Will it make a sing noise? A sing noise. I think it's fun. Who cares? <laughs> it's a seventy-eight. Actually, technically, that's too hot. <laughs> That's too hot. Um, you go, so <laughs> I can't fucking handle it. I wish I could, but I just don't, I don't fucking. Um, you say in the book that you are the, you consider yourself the quote face. Oh, did you feel that air? That's nice. You're right. You're <laughs> quote, the face and voice of your dad's legacy. Yeah. End quote. That sounds to me both incredibly daunting and also like enduringly inspiring too. Yeah. Which which one is it? It's um, you know, it is really about owning it, but not letting it own you. What do you mean? It's it's like um, it's about owning it in the sense that okay, yeah, I'm his only child. I'm the daughter of, and I have found since he died. My part of my job is to receive right. the love totally, yeah, towards him because yeah. he's not here to receive it anymore. Right, right. And from day one, that started happening, and I started to realize this is not about me. You know, it's I hate this term, but it's like I am a conduit or a vessel. That's all I am. I am here to receive. I receive it lovingly. I receive it with an open heart, and it has nothing to do with me. Right. Right. You know, that yes, I have his part of me is his DNA and all of that kind of stuff. And I spent, you know, 50, almost 50 years with him on the planet. And so there's that. And then the other part is really figuring out, um, you know, so it's accepting it, but not not personalizing it because it isn't anything to do with me. Yeah. And yet at the same time, knowing that I had great parents, like really great parents. Yeah, we had some dark years. 
clearly. We'll get into that. But um, great parents, wise, soulful, smart people. I come from good stock. So what am I going to make of that? You yeah, know, whether yeah. my dad's famous or not, I come from good stock. I come from good people who gave me uh, a great uh, perspective on life, a lot of love, uh, a, a lot to overcome, some trauma to overcome, to create my own wisdom in my own life and, and create my own chaos. Yeah. Um, so what do I want to do with that? And, and so, you know, um, I'm I'm proud to carry on the Carlin tradition and, and the way I, you know, like I've been talking about this book, obviously, for about a month now. And what I'm starting to figure out is that, um, m- you know, my dad taught me how to be a truth teller, but I do it in a different way. Mm, you know, totally. I speak the emotional truth of my life and I go there and I'm willing to bring an audience with me, whether they're a reader or an audience in a theater. Yeah. And um, and my dad did that too. He spoke raw human truth about the little things we share, about language, and about the big things uh, in life. Yeah. Um, he just didn't talk about it, his own personal inner life. But that's that's the territory, at least in this book, I've been mining and, and yeah. that I've been mining the last 15 years. You, you talk um, a lot about... So you went to under, uh, UCLA undergrad in the Pacifica. You got your master's mm-hmm. in psychology. <laughs> yes, in Jungian. Thank you. Jungian depth psychology. Yes. Yes. You talk about, I forget what part of the book this happens, but you talk about your first experience with panic. Mm-hmm. I don't want to talk about that for a little bit because that's something I struggle with as well. Mm. Um, like anxiety disorder or panic disorder. Yep. Um, do you remember your first, like the first time... That you thought you were... That I was dying? Yeah, that you were dying. <laughs> yeah, that you thought that this is over? Yeah. Um, I think the, really that very first time was my dad was shooting a pilot, a, a sitcom pilot for HBO called Apartment 2C. And I asked him, I want to be in it because I'd always wanted to be like SNL, SCTV. Like that was my dream. Those were my heroes or Lily Tomlin, Laugh-In, all that kind of stuff. And I said, I want to part in it. Uh, I think I'm ready to do this. And it was 1984, so I was 21. And um, we were rehearsing. Uh, we were at what used to be called A&R Records, which was on La Brea near Sunset, which is actually the old Charlie Chaplin Studios. Mm. And it was, uh, they had sound stages there. And to walking on, you know how it is in this town, when you get to walk on one of those places yeah. where... Yeah. Hollywood was created. Yes. There's something so magical oh, yeah. about that. Absolutely. Y- your cynicism just fucking disappears instantly, and yeah. you're just a little kid dreaming again. Yeah. So here we were on Chaplin's stages, which is just incredible. And I was rehearsing with Bobcat Goldthwaite and Pat McCormick and my dad, wow. and it was incredible. And I get in the car with my first husband. Um, Andrew. Andrew, who I hadn't married yet because I was – smart and knew not to marry him yet. <clears throat> and uh, yes, we were experimenting with cocaine at the time, doing a little more than experimenting. And um, we were in the car on the way home and this thing hit me. Yeah. This thing where my heart rate went up a million yeah. miles an hour and that 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 as I say, like 10,000 pounds of adrenaline is rushing through your limbs. And yeah, you're convinced. Yeah. Death is imminent. Yeah, you can't control it. Cannot control it. Have no and if you have never had one before, oh. you really do believe you are oh, dying. It's the scariest thing in the it's world. It's horrific. Yeah. And so it happened in a car. He was driving. And Ugh. then this thing started happening where it was um 
it's, you know, it happened in a car when I was driving once. And then once you start having things like that happen, you start to associate yeah. the panic with where you're at. Fuck yeah. And it's completely illogical, doesn't make sense, but that's how you try to make sense of it. Oh, the car triggered it. Oh, that's what it was. And now the car triggers it, which means I'm not able to get in the car very often yeah. or easily to get anywhere. And even the thought about getting in a car will trigger it. And so it becomes this horrific, horrific Smaller and smaller prison, yeah. you know, where you have less and less safe places to go. Was this in the family? Did, did My mother, yes. What about your grandparents? I don't, don't think so. Don't know. But my mother had it in her 20s and reveal, had revealed it to me that, I mean, Great. she had like identity crisis issues. Like she couldn't yeah. even sign her name on a check. It got so bad for oh, her. Fuck me. You know, and this is like when she, she was like became invisible when my dad got famous and yeah, we yeah. were all stuck at home and dad was uh, being famous somewhere. Yeah. Um, but she... And she was ha she was like volunteering at a time at a hospital, could no longer go and do that, could barely drive me to school. I had no knowledge of this, you know. Um, but she finally said to me, yeah, this is something that's happened to me too, you yeah. know. So yeah. it, 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 I think it is a little bit of wiring. I think so too. Yeah. Is it something that you still, that to this day, it still happens, but now you have your, as my therapist would say, your toolbox oh, yeah. that you use Completely. To fix and yeah. my husband too is great. I mean, he'll just look at me and go, you're not dying. Yeah, exactly. You're you're okay, and I like. Yeah. Oh yeah, I'm okay. I remember that now, <laughs> and I do. I'm so, uh, and it rarely happens anymore. But when it does, I remind my. You know, I do belly breathing. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Yep. You do all your things. Yep. Are you probably hungry? It's probably just you're hungry. <laughs> yes. That's one of the things my therapist gets on saying. Like, Have you eaten? <laughs> oh, I haven't. Okay, just eat a fucking. It's like that's eat Get a Snickers commercial. Get a fucking banana. Commercial. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> same shit. Let's take the quickest of breaks, and uh, we'll be right back with more Kelly Carr. I'm so excited to introduce you guys to Howl FM, the best and most convenient way to listen to all the episodes of Reading Aloud. On the web at howl.fm and on the go with the Howl app. Yeah, you can stream and download all Reading Aloud episodes that have been released in the past six months and go beyond the audio with behind the scenes photos, commentaries, and more. But there's a way to go further. Yes, you can go deeper by upgrading to Howl Premium for only $4.99 a month. You get exclusive access to the entire Reading Aloud archive and to all the Earwolf and Wolf Pop archives. This includes all episodes older than six months, all remastered with zero ads. That's right, no ads. Only with Howl Premium, listen to hundreds of hours of the WTF podcast with Mark Marin, classic interviews in there, Robin Williams, Louis C.K., and more. Howl has also partnered with some of your favorite hosts and comedians to develop Howl Originals, brand new shows available only with Howl Premium. Check out the great new series from Lauren Lapkus and the AV Club right now. Already, there are 10 brand new hilarious Howl Originals, and we are adding new shows every week. Get access to all this exclusive content, both on your phone and on your desktop, with Howl Premium for only $4.99 per month. And with the promo code READING, you get a full month of a free trial. Just go to howl.fm and enter code READING at checkout. Remember, you can use Howl on your phone or your computer, but you can only use my promo code on howl.fm. That's the website. So go to howl.fm, that's H-O-W-L dot F-M, and use the promo code READING 
for one free trial of Howl Premium. You talk so uh, honestly about um, about your mom. It's such a wonderful reveal. You think this is a book about you and your dad, mm-hmm. but it's about the Three Musketeers, as you call them, mm-hmm. your, your family. And you talk so honestly and brilliantly about the death of your mom. She suffers through breast cancer. Mm-hmm. And then 14 years? 14 years 14 goes years, by. 14 years, yeah. liver cancer yeah. happens. Um, and you... Let's see here. You comment... I, Page, okay. On page 182. Um, we're going to the book, people. We're going to the book, folks. You, um, she is, she's literally dying. Yes. Um, and you are going through her office and you find some of her writings. Yes. And I just want to, um, I just want to read this. It's a paragraph, but it's, it's, uh, it's so moving. Um, while in my mom's office rummaging for collage supplies, I came across a yellow three-ring binder full of writings. They were my mother's writings, some handwritten and others typed. I found a corner of the couch and began to read. I felt uncomfortable plunging into this private material, but with a strange visitor of death in the house, I felt all the rules had already been broken. That's brilliant. I quietly, quietly reali- quickly realized that some of the writings I had seen, but others I had not. I found an essay called My Race Against Time, in a separate portfolio, it was typed on that thin onion skin paper that I remembered so well from my childhood, I began to read. If we could live our lives to their fullest and never have to face any kind of crisis or tragedy, I know we all agree it would be a beautiful experience. Unfortunately, life isn't meant to be that perfect. And at one time or another, we must all meet our own personal challenge. Two years ago, I learned what it was like to grow up overnight, and I lived in a nightmare of conflicting emotions. At that time, I was 23 years old, and I felt I had already reached a level of maturity until I was put to an extreme emotional test. Within a period of six weeks, I had to face the death of my mother and the birth of my first child. I I know, right? So It's insane. So what happens next? I mean, I can't imagine finding something that it personable. Was, it was insane. It was that moment of just like, okay, who's watching me? Yeah, right. <laughs> Like, I don't believe in a personal God, like the guy up in the sky kind of a thing, you yeah. know? But it is one of those moments in a life like, holy shit. Like, I was handed the instruction manual yeah. of something. Yeah. And that is the moment. I mean, <clears throat> we'd been in denial around my mom. I mean, we knew she was probably going to die in six months, but we'd been in denial about how quickly she was going. And that was like when the fog of denial lifted and I realized that this this piece, this piece that I had just read in my hands was like telling me, Kelly, death is real and yeah. she's going. This is happening right now in front of you. And this is not pretend anymore. And there's and there's no and there is such a thing called death. You yeah. know? And yeah. for it and for, and for this to come out of a the 25-year-old version of your mother. Yes. Too must have, because that, that's what blew my mind. Yeah. Because I would love to, I mean, both my parents are living, um, but I'd, I'd love to go back to that period of their lives and see what was uh, yeah. happening inside of their brain. Totally. And for this to be happening at, in her brain at 25. Yeah. And to see her at the end of her life and to read this piece, it's just, I can't. It's it it, it so is. It's fucking intense. And, you know, and this is, par- this is part of the 
these kind of events in my life are why I wanted to write this book. It's like, what do I do with this stuff? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like I have to share it. It's been I felt like it's all been given to me as a gift in some way and to kind of like signpost to get me through things. Yeah. So it's like, how do I pay it forward? How do I just share it in some way to say, look, people, see this shit? This shit's insane. Yeah. And this is real and this is happening. Fuck yeah. Yeah. Um, early on in the book, you mentioned the story about George getting his hands on some bad acid and you have to be the parent. You have yeah. to help him yeah. recover. And I thought... Two things when I read that passage, I thought, how cruel. I thought some things no children should ever see yep. should have to par- to see their parents' brain split wide open mm-hmm. and to be completely broken. And yet the other side of me says, well, maybe that's a wonderful lesson to learn that young, that your p- parents are just fucking people, man. And they are yeah. imperfect. Yeah. And you have to realize, the sooner you realize that, the better. Because I feel like the longer it takes you to realize that your parents are humans, you have this impossible projection. For sure. And then all of a sudden, when it starts to crumble later in life, I think it's a little bit harder to deal yeah, with. Yeah, and it you know it should ideally, from a psychological development stance, it should happen where you have enough ego strength in order to survive that. Mm. So you have enough sense of a self so that you don't feel like the rugs been pulled out from yeah. underneath you with that incident. Um, I buried that in my unconscious and did not remember it until years later in a okay. therapy, uh, hy- hypnosis situation. Oh, shit. And I ended up having to go to my parents and say, did this happen? Oh my gosh. And they said, uh, Yes. And we ended up having a beautiful family discussion about it because it was a source of great shame and pain for my father. Because it was the only, I mean, really the only regret my dad had about his entire life was the effect that those, a few of those incidents had on me. And it was that profound and it was that traumatic and it was that terrifying. Like you said, I mean, you put it beautifully watching your, I mean, my father was my God, was everything as most fathers are, but especially for daughters. And to watch this man, he was like a heap of crumbled Can you see it now? human. Yes. Yeah. I mean, he was just, he was out of his mind. He was out of his mind. And, you know, to watch this man, he was crying and he was raging and he was smashing shit against the wall and his hands were bleeding. I mean, it was absolutely terrifying. So I buried that so far below that there was there was no way for my child mind to assimilate that information. And it's really interesting what you said about, you know, understanding your parents are imperfect. I certainly had enough experiences of that during those drug years, you know. Um, But what was so funny was, is the way it played out in my family was my dad, no matter what, was always on the pedestal. And my mother became the demonized one because of her alcoholism and because her personality changed so much when she drank. And it really took me into my 20s for me to write my relationship with my mother. But it's really taken me uh, into into my 40s, it really in my 40s that I finally pull my dad off the pedestal, mm. you know, and, and, and even more so now since he's been gone for me to be able to take him down and, and make him a real human being for myself. Yeah. And that's one of the terrifying things of writing this book is that I'm making him human yeah. to his fans. Right. And there's a lot of people who get it. And I've been getting, I just got an email this morning from another fan 
out of the blue, huge fan of my dad's who just thanked me for humanizing him Wow! and thanked me for, I'm like, I'm, and I'm kind of really fascinated about this. And maybe you can help me with this too, because I'm shocked at how many men are getting so much out of my book. I thought, oh, women are going to get it. Their daughters out there, women trying oh. to find their voice and everything. Huh. And for some reason, it's just because I'm a woman, I guess. And I, I just kind of have this, you know, yeah, women's power thing inside of me. But it's just been such a beautiful experience to have his fans come to me and say, you're right. I do love him more now than yeah. I did before. Well, the stories, I mean, the stories that you tell in your life is, it's just, it's universal. It's something that anyone can connect right. to. It's right. family. Yes. This is a book about family. It is, truly. That That's it. Yes, you're and very right about anyone, that. anyone, I mean, unless- Anyone with a family. Yeah, unless- <laughs> Anyone you, out there with a family? If you have a family, <laughs> you're going to appreciate this. So I, yeah, I understand. I mean, this is not a like women's empowerment book. No, no. This is a, this yeah. is a thoughtful person coming to terms with who her parents are and yeah. who she is yeah. and dealing with that fucking journey that yeah. we all have to go on and everyone has their own path and everyone has yep. their different types of hurricanes that, that shower For on them. sure. But, but we're all, we're all tasked with this, this thing of growing up, which you said so beautifully, which is about, you know, pulling your parents off the pedestal. Yeah. You know, it's an essential part of being an adult. Yeah. And we all delay it and dance around it as much as we can. And even demonizing your parents, even pulling them, you know, whether they're on a pedestal or demonizing, either position is not an, yeah, ad totally. is not an adult oh, position. You're exactly right. Yeah. You're totally right. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. It's almost harder the other way. It is almost. To bring them up. Because then the you got to forgive. There's, totally. a, there's a forgiveness factor. <laughs> not easy. <laughs> Um, this is a hard thing to talk about, but you wrote about it, so I feel like it's we can broach it. Yep. I've never had um I've never had a gun pulled on me. Uh-huh. And I've been very lucky. And I don't think I've ever come close. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe I have. I just haven't been aware of it. You have. Yeah. And I wonder if that image is that image of the movie of your life is still something that you see and something that you have to that you think about, or is it? It isn't, luckily. Great, and, and, and it may be something that I've <laughs> completely, news. completely in denial about. Nope, still, I doubt it. But um, yeah, it was. It's yeah. I mean, if anyone out there has ever felt their life being imminently threatened, uh, and it is amazing what the body does. I mean, I talk about it. I peed my yeah. pants. I mean, it was just completely involuntary. Like the body's going, holy shit. Yep, we're out. We're, we're done. We're shutting it down. <laughs> we're shutting everything, yep, everything down. Everybody out. Everybody out. Everybody out of the pool. Exactly. Completely. <laughs> because that tiger thing, that thing in your brain, that, that, that thing, you need to do that now, which is run, yes, you yes. know, but instead it was paralyzed <laughs> pee. Uh, yeah. And, um, yeah, to even think, and but but my intuition was always so right on about that guy, and knowing that it's yeah. like there's something dangerous here. I mean, he's put me up on a pedestal. He was the one who worshipped me, and yet when it came down to his psychotic, he was in a psychotic state on drugs. I get that. Um, and the minute he realized kind of what he had done uh, out of desperation because I was trying – I was going to walk away from him. Uh, and then, you know, shocking why it took me so much longer to actually walk away from the marriage. I mean, you no, know, I after someone pulls a gun on you, you think, OK, well, there's that capability, you know. No, I feel like that's that's yeah. just another – just in, the other, enforces the other side of the brain uh, yeah. to make you stay. I yeah. Mean, I, I understand it, yeah. that. Yeah, it's, it's really – and out there f f 
w- women who are stuck in abusive Absolutely. relationships. Absolutely. My God, it's just. You just <sighs> reinforce. I know it's just fucking devastating so, and heartbreaking. So, so, so terrifying. Um, I want to talk about, you talk a lot about mindfulness and mm-hmm. meditation and Buddhism. And I want to talk about that a little bit because that's something I'm fascinated oh, by. Oh, cool. Yeah. It's something I had no interest in when I came out here and I just sort of like, you know, crossed my arms. Like these oh, you LA fucking yoga. Dippy, go fuck yourself. <laughs> you go and your walk. fucking arugula. Exactly. Or now it's kale. It's kale. Um, <laughs> I saw some really ridiculous kale t-shirt uh, in this, in the store of like a boutique, like baby clothes store. Right. <laughs> right. In Los Feliz. Oh, I, I wish I could remember what it was. It doesn't matter, but I'm it's, sure it was precious. It was fucking stupid. Um, <laughs> But I, I took up meditation like two years ago, and I've fallen off. And I was doing it twice a day, mm-hmm. and I did the class and did the whole what thing. What class did you take? The mindfulness, actual MBE, the mindfulness? I did uh, Vedic. Okay. Uh, like, oh. Which I guess is like TM, but not affiliated with TM. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the dude who runs it, it was, was in TM for mm-hmm. a long time, mm-hmm. and then he got tired with it being so expensive and it being yep. like, there's a lot of attorneys involved. It's like a big, it's, it's still, it's wonderful work, but it's still kind of a corporation. Yeah. So he's like, I just don't, I don't want it to cost so much. Because you know what? It's free. Yeah, exactly. Sitting on a cushion, following your breath. Fuck yes. It's free. That's That's what I love about Thich Nhat Hanh. You can do it anywhere and it's free. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it, benefits your life completely are you still do you practice like where where are my, you my practice is also it's it's like everything else it's that we discipline. try to do it's, it's like exercising and eating right yeah and you know the momentum of life works against us yeah for sure and the momentum of corporate america really works against yes, us telling you over and over to not do that yes there's that to drink a beer watch this show watch, watch the watch tv this game. and then the momentum of even our own artistic urges you know yeah. i mean i like you love living in my head i'm guessing and sure. you think in your imagination oh, and yeah. you're there and very busy up there very busy up there and then there's times oh writing it down and i have an idea and pursuing it and you know being involved in a creative life takes a lot of energy and everything so yeah there's a lot pulling us away from the cushion and like you when i do it Life-changing. Yeah. Day-changing to begin with. Yes. And then week-changing, month-changing, life-changing. And i am been in a whirlwind with this book tour, have not been doing it. Yeah. Was kind of off kilter last week. Made myself get, I've got the little mindfulness little app thing. Oh, 20 minutes, 20 minutes, give me a bell afterwards. Yeah, smart. And, you know, you can do anything for 20 minutes. Yep. And so I just sat for 20 minutes. And I'm telling you, it was like my the whole universe changed. Yeah. It really is. If you change your mind, your life does change. The yes. world around you changes. Okay, Absolutely. yeah, there's still crazy people in Syria, but you know, uh, not everything changes. But yes, your attitude changes. Your perception and completely, your and you there's more space. And here's what I I teach I teach women how to. I used to have a women's group where I taught uh, meditation for years, and I used to say to people, and my teacher used to say this. I know it sounds counterintuitive, but people say I don't have enough time. I don't even have time for meditation. And I tell people, you know what? If you sit for 20 to 30 minutes a day, more time is accessible for you during the day. Mm. It's like time slows down in every other aspect of your life because you're centered and you're not rushing in some way. There's like all the time in the world for everything. Yeah, It's... It really is a sense of inner spaciousness that's created that creates a sense of more time. 
to my listeners, how would you recommend them dip in wherever they're listening across the country and across the world? How, how to, to like just take a baby step towards this world? Yes. Is there a book? Is there a website? Is there someplace you people know, can go? I, I always aim people towards Thich Nhat Hanh. And it's T-H-I-C-H-N-H-A-T-H-A-H-N. Thich Nhat Hanh, he's a Vietnamese Zen master. He's written a million books on mindfulness, but just any one of his basic mindfulness uh, books, um, I can't think of their names right now. And you could go onto YouTube and type in mindfulness meditation, and I'm guessing you will get at least a thousand different videos of someone teaching you how to sit and just watch your breathing and letting your breath go. And here's the biggest lesson about it. People say, uh, there's all these thoughts in my head and I have this monkey mind and I just want to clear my head out. Okay, here's the deal. That'll never happen. Your brain's job, your mind's job is to create thoughts. That's why you have a conscious mind. It's Mm. a thought generator. Mm. So your job is not to like sit there hating yourself because your mind won't fucking shut up. Yeah. Here's your job. Your job is to sit, you follow it, you close your eyes, you notice the sounds around you, notice your body, then you notice your breathing and you're watching your breath and you're going, okay, in, out, in, out. And then all of a sudden you realize that you're thinking about a trip to Disneyland that you want to have in nine months and you're going to bring this friend and you're going to go on this ride and everything like that. And you're like, holy shit, wait, how did I get to Disneyland? Right, right, right. And then you, and then this is what normally happens. Jesus fucking Christ, I'm a fucking idiot. I can't even fucking breathe for 30 seconds without thinking about Disneyland. Right. All right. Here's the whole point of meditation. That moment you realize you're at Disneyland You say to yourself, instead of beating yourself up, you say, oh, look at that. Look at that. I went, my mind went all the way to Disneyland, and um, I'm now going to lovingly re-aim my attention back to my breath and start over. Right. That is the practice. It's the practice of being kind and loving to yourself when your mind has wandered. That's the whole point of it. Yeah. And as my meditation teacher said to me 16 years ago, try it for 10 years and let me know how it works. <laughs> because in 10 years, your life will be changed, even if yeah. you don't do it for 30 minutes a day. But if you start to really and, and find a group of people to sit with, it's very important if you can do that. Um, but once I figured out that and really got that it, it is about this loving moment, and, and, it, here's, and here's the metaphor I always use with people. Imagine a toddler, you're with a toddler and a toddler's trying to learn how to walk. Yeah. And it tries to get up and then it falls. You don't say to it, you fucking idiot, why can't you fucking walk right. yet? Right. right. You say, "Oops, you fell down." Right. "Oops, I sorry. Let's get up." It's the exact way you treat your mind. Yeah. Because that's what your mind is. It's a toddler. Yeah. So you just love your love your little toddler mind. There's that that's beautifully said and that's not an easy thing to explain mm, the mm. um this david foster wallace book that i always go back to it's one of my favorite books it was turned into a movie um called end of tour uh that james Ponsel directed it came out this fall um the book is called although you although of course you end up becoming yourself and it's this um journalist david lipsky that went on a road trip with david foster wallace when infinite jess came out wow and he just has all these cassette tapes of their conversations and so he basically just like turned these conversations he just basically just had them um uh, transcribed transcribed wow and like no 
editorializing. He just transcribed <sighs> these conversations, and that's it. And David Foster Wallace talks about tennis and fame and television and music and movies and thoughtfulness and mindfulness and depression and suicide and every. He talks about everything, mm. and he he uh, he sums up him dealing with his, his depression and he was committed when he was in college um, at McLean and in uh, that's affiliated with Harvard like where James Taylor went mm-hmm. where his other you know famous people went and he talks about just trying to get to the place in your life where you think about something that you love just unconditionally yes. whether it's a like an animal or a parent or just like a baby, mm-hmm. like a ba- that something that you that you only love. Yes, and you know how you feel towards that smiling baby looking up at you, that joy that you are that you are um, just like shooting at it. Yes, aim that feeling onto yourself. Yeah, which is almost impossible to do. Yeah, because you have to jump through th- so many hoops in this life. Yes, but if you get to a point where you could treat yourself. Yeah. With that same kind of love. And that's literally what this med- this meditation practice is about. Yeah. You know, I mean that's that's what loving kindness practice is. And 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 what it it does is you do over time, every time you do that, you are learning to love yourself. That yeah. thing they always say, you know, just love yourself is yeah. like, yeah, right. That's Whatever. Easy. That's easy. Yeah. And it isn't easy, but there is a way to learn to do it. And I have to say, after sixteen years of doing it, um, it's completely transformed my relationship with myself. It really, really has. And it's allowed me to write like dude, this book is only because of that. I mean, I did, wouldn't have enough self-love in me to, to, to do it. And now when like people come to me and talk to me about the book, it's like, I can just be there with it. It's not like, Oh, they should have done this or should have done that. It's just, I'm just, it's mm. just, it's just all unconditional space yeah. now. Yeah. Have you had any blowback? Not a lot. Not a lot. I mean, I I went before the book was out. There was some early reviews on Amazon, and my publisher's like, "Don't don't go." <laughs> no, don't. no, no. Yeah. A, I've learned years ago, do not read comments on the internet mm-hmm. ever. But then I'm like, oh, but this is different. It's Amazon. She's like, no, these people are not real reviewers. Mm-hmm. They're just readers who get a lot of books. Yep. Um. So, but there has been really no blowback at right. all. I've gotten great reviews. I've gotten great feedback. Um. And I think the biggest thing that's interesting for me is people assume because I'm a famous person's daughter and I've written a book that it's some sort of daddy dearest book that that's going to like some people just assume that yeah that's who they are that's how they see the world that's how how they're going to see other people so and then they then they assume well you know she's just doing it for attention or whatever and and then what's lovely is if people can get past that and just read the book for what it is, they see that it just has nothing to do with any of that. You know, it's just not a part of the conversation. Well, the cover also doesn't sell Daddy Dearest. Right. The cover sells love. It's pretty sweet. Yeah, it's a They did a great job with that cover. How many covers did you have to look at before you chose this one? This one was it. Oh my God. They created three. My editor only showed me this one. And she said, really, do I need to show you anything else? And I was like, no. It's such a brilliant fucking cover. They did such a good job with it. It's so fucking good. And I for sure wanted that picture on. And when they first looked at the picture in all black and white, they're like, well, I don't know. It's... It's a. It's not very cheery. I mean, if you look at the expression on our oh, faces, no, we're does, kind of serious. Is. It's they, only cheery. And then they brought the bananas up, and they really highlight. My dad and I are eating bananas. I'm about seven years old. Dad's just turned to counterculture George Carlin, so it's about seventy. <laughs> yeah, seventy one. <laughs> and um, and I've 
clearly just been woken up. Like dad just got home from on the road, like, hey, let's wake up the kid, you know, and they wake me up and they put a banana in my hand. I don't know why. Maybe it's breakfast. I don't know what's going on. But I look a little sleepy. I'm in my PJs. And it's just a sweet little, it's a real Carlin home moment. It's it a really brilliant is. cover. <laughs> I want to read um, the back, uh, the back flap. Kelly Carlin has written for film, TV, and most recently the stage with her critically acclaimed solo show, A Carlin Home Companion. Her master's degree in counseling psychology from Pacifica Graduate Institute informs her work as an author, speaker, workshop leader, and citizen of Earth. She lives in Los Angeles with her husband, Bob McCall, and their Jack Russell Terrier, Stella, but dreams of living somewhere with a lot fewer cars someday. <laughs> Yes. Where do you want to live? Uh, <laughs> Cody and I just had a really in-depth conversation before you came in here about where we hope to yeah. live someday. And Cody's dad is actually on the back of a motorcycle. He's been on the back of a motorcycle for how long? For two years. For two years. Wow. He and his girlfriend going everywhere. Everywhere. <sighs> and my mother is... Just, like, just a yeah, big breath. All over the States. My mother's retired and her and her partner sold their house, got a truck with a trailer, and they've been on the road for two and a half years. Yeah, I could see my husband and I doing something like that. Is that... Do you have aspirations to do that? Uh, maybe, yeah. Or do you want to just go somewhere? I don't know. I would love to live somewhere where there's a lot of beautiful nature, trees around, maybe a little water. Like, I think about, like, Whidbey Island... Up, up above Seattle, like oh yeah, that gorgeous area. Yeah, but recently I've fallen in love. Denman with, Island too is amazing. Is it? Yeah, and that's just it's just so trees and amazing. But I've also fallen in love with the area around Santa Fe and Taos. Mm. Um, there's something very holy about that ground. Yeah. Um, you know, water's an issue though in New Mexico, but uh, but yeah, I want trees, and I, then I want something where I'm, I'm, but I'm close enough. I, 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 here's I, here's what I want. I need nature, mildish winter. It doesn't have to be, you know. I just I can't deal with. I'm a Southern California girl. I cannot deal You're not with going to Vermont. Cannot deal with Vermont. Beautiful. Can't deal with it unless I could maybe have two places. Then I sure. could do Vermont and someplace else, and then someplace where I'm, you know, within an hour, hour and a half, two hours of something cosmopolitan. That's what I need, like New York City or That's, something like yeah. that. Someplace where I can get my culture on, and have like a real interesting conversation. Yes, but um, that's what I need and too. Because I don't need. Unfortunately, my husband's a camera man and a DP, so he has to live in LA. Oh shit! To okay. work, he's he works on sitcoms right now, and so oh. he. he he has to be here. What show is he doing right he's now? He's doing a bunch of kids shows. He's Disney he, shows? He's working with Sid and Marty Croft. Do you know who they are? Yeah, of okay, course. HR Puff and Stuff yeah. guys? Okay, so he's working with these guys on a new show called Mutt and Stuff. Yes, I heard it's the trippiest thing that's ever been fucking made. So he so he works on this show. Sid, oh, Sid and Marty Croft are 800 years old. Yeah, right. I just have to say that. And all of us who grew up on HR Puff and Stuff, which I completely did. Yeah. Um, so trippy shit, yo. Trippy shit. So the first <laughs> week, they're all hanging out, and I don't know if it was Sid or Marty. One's the creative, one's the business, and they're kind of hanging out. And one of the utility guys says to them, "You know, I I grew up on HR Puff and stuff, you know." And, he, and and Sid or Marty says to him, "Oh yeah, we mind fucked a whole generation." <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit. I mean, their other show was called Lidsville. 
Yeah. It was just a bunch of hats. Yep. But Lidsville, hello. If, Their stuff if you, is- In the 70s, that was that was an ounce of weed, people. Yeah. A lid was an ounce of weed. Real trippy yeah, shit. Yeah, totally trippy shit. So, yeah, there. so my husband works on one of their shows. Okay. So, but, so you have to stay in So I have California. to, so for now, for the next, you know, since we're getting free healthcare with the union, thank you very much, sure. IATSE Local 600. Yep. Uh, like, we finally, like, understand, oh, this is the Hollywood life. Like, we always thought, when I, we did my dad, we did a, a screen, uh, uh, teleplay for my dad's sitcom when he worked on Fox and we'd gotten a chance I, I, I tell the story in the book of you know being part of the Warner Brothers sitcom thing and I oh we'll be sitcom writers and everything and that was always our dream 20 years ago um, you know and here we are 20 and we bought a house thinking oh this will be the five year house we'll, we'll move into Brentwood and sure. we'll be fine you absolutely know? yeah we're still in our house but we uh-huh. love our, we love our little house um, you know and it's it's nice not living the crazy part of the Hollywood dream you know people make a bunch of money then suddenly they're paying a $20,000 a month mortgage exactly Exactly, and they're fucking jerk offs. No, thank you. No, uh, but yeah. So we, you know, but someday that'll end, and we'll get to leave LA, and uh, or maybe you know, kind of planning on second home thing too. Like just more nature. I just need more nature. I need yeah. a fucking tree. I need trees. I hear you. Yeah. And maybe some rain these days. Just yeah, even, I would love some rain. You know, it's I'm so ex- gloomy today. I'm excited about it. El Nino. I know. I Me love too. the gloom. I can't wait. I can't wait. Can't wait for the El Nino. Can't wait for the mudslides. Me There's too. nothing more exciting than so watching local anchors. Yes, lose their minds. <laughs> It's just, it's a joy. It really is a joy. I have a joy. pair of delightful winter boots that I've been wanting to My, wear. I have wellies from yeah. the UK. And even last year, we'd get like sprinkling. I'm like, honey, I'm putting the wellies on. Put go the to Vons. fucking boots on for sure. <laughs> yeah, L.L. Bean. There's yes. an article in bostonglobe.com recently that L.L. Bean is sold out until February on men's boots. Yeah. Because it's they're the fucking greatest boots ever. Absolutely. I just want to wear a sensible shoe. Yes. My I'm... guest today has been Kelly Carlin. She wrote a book called A Carlin Home Companion. It's about her relationship with her mom, Brenda, and her dad, George. It's a must-read. It is a fantastic book, and I cannot recommend it highly enough. Kelly, it's really an honor to have you here. Thank Are you, you kidding? So much. This was one of my favorite conversations in the whole oh, last I'm so six glad. weeks. I'm so glad. Truly. Oh, thank this you. This has been lovely. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad you came in. This is I Me too. please, folks, go get this book immediately. Again, I just want to thank Kelly Carlin for coming in and being so wonderful and honest and enlightening, dare I say. Uh, her book is a, really a must read. It's so much fun. And she goes, I just scratched that we were talking after the interview ended. I just scratched the surface about the stuff between her, uh, her and her dad. If you're a George Carlin fan, oh, forget it. This is, you'll read this book in a day. Um, it's fucking great. And it is really big. And it's, she just has a lot of courage. She goes way deep um, into addiction and depression and her creative life and the stuff with her mom and dad and their deaths and how she negotiated it. Um, it's wonderful. It's called The Carlin Home Companion. Go pick it up. Also, after you pick that up, pick up The Haunting of Hill House, Shirley Jackson's classic horror novel. It's a must, must get, because you want to get into the fucking Halloween spirit, people. Our next book club is this spectacular piece of classic horror. Go get it at your local bookstore, read it, and then send us your thoughts about the book at readingaloudpod at gmail.com. That's the Twitter handle. The email is readingaloudpodcast, excuse me, at gmail.com. So read the book. It's a quick read. It's like 250 pages. Read it and get spooky. 
get freaked out, get creeped out, and then tell us what you thought about it. And then we'll talk about it in our book club, which will be in uh, the middle of November. So enjoy uh, the Halloween spirit with this book. And big thanks again to Kelly Carlin for coming in and chatting with me about her book. Uh, my name is Nate Cordry. I'm the host of Reading Aloud. And thanks so much for listening. We'll be back with more Reading Aloud next week. Oh, you hit me like a hurricane. Hello podcast listeners. Now that your program has ended, why not listen to the best podcast in the universe? Improv for Humans. Oh, welcome to Improv for Humans with Matt Besser, that's me! Improv legend Matt Besser and his friends. Take your suggestions. Three of the best improvisers in the world will be improvising off your suggestions given to me at Twitter, newspaper articles, we're going to crap on YouTube. And turn them into long-form improv comedy. Hello, 911. What, what, what's your emergency? Uh, look, I am, being, I, am being, I am being harassed by my bank. Hold on a second. First, I need you to pick a site key picture. Oh, Jesus. Uh, you can pick a boat. You can pick a candy cane. You can pick a pumpkin. I'll take the boat. Pick, I will take the uh, boat. Please listen to all the options first, sir. You can pick a block of cheese, or you can pick a wheel of cheese. Is the... Uh, um, I'm sorry, I'll sir. Take, that you only had you I'll only had five God seconds. Damn it! You only had five seconds. God the police cannot help you. Listen to Improv for Humans on iTunes, Earwolf.com, Howl, or your favorite podcast app. This has been a Wolf Pop production. Executive produced by Paul Shear, Adam Sachs, Chris Bannon, and Matt Gorley. For more information and content, visit wolfpop.com.